Hey, welcome to the Learning Little Lessons podcast. Today's episode is something we recorded at Sister Share 2020, held in October. This one here is we lovingly dub as Storytime with Bia. It is with Shirley Klutzel, who her nickname is Bia. And the two people that she's interviewing are Carolyn Andre and Becca Steiner. And their stories are amazing. They're different and they're amazing. So I hope you enjoy it. Our two different stories are going to be from Carolyn Andre and Becca T. Steiner. So Carolyn, right here, has been going to Smithfield Church for a year and a half. But prior to that, she lived in Denver, where her story actually happened. And Becca grew up in Ritman and then was in Columbus for nine years and then recently moved back to Ritman. So our first part is going to be what their experience was that taught them hope. And Carolyn will go first. Hi, everyone. Um, as Bia said, I'm Carolyn Andre. Um, I have been married to my husband, Danny, for about 11 years, and I have two little girls. Um, I grew up in the sister church, and I recently moved back for family. And um, so I've been back here for a couple of years now. Um, before I start, I just wanted to um, share a little bit of my heart before I share my whole heart. Um, I've had a lot of nerves leading up to today, and I just really feel like God has quieted those. Um, thank you for everybody who's been praying for us. I've gotten so many sweet texts of just support. Um, I know Becca and I feel a little bit raw and exposed, and I think it's because we're sharing things that are really personal to us. Um, but I know that the Spirit is asking me to be obedient to what He's asked me to share, and so with confidence. We're going to try and do that today. Um, I want you to know that God can use any situation that you've been placed in for his glory. Um, If you would have asked me nine years ago when this happened, that I would be in front of almost 100 women that I don't know really well, that I would just be sharing this with you. um, I would have been like, you're kidding. Like, you know, I I, I couldn't see the other side of it. And um, as I share this, I feel like some, some things maybe may seem either Trivial in comparison, I know that we've all been through hurt, and Becca's going to share a little bit that we can't compare pain or things that we've been through. Everything that we experience is is personal to us um, and how we feel, and I just really, my hope is to share that anyone who's had a similar hurt would, would feel heard and validated and maybe have a few more tools um, to work through it and um, to experience it and, and look at it years later and actually something that was good for me. Um, So a little bit more about me. I know a lot of people don't know. Um, I grew up in the Cleveland area. I was brought up in the sister church. Um, I married my husband. I was really young. I was 18. And we moved to California because that was where he was working at the time. Um, But we felt led to move to Colorado um, to be with his family as he grew up. His dad passed away when he was young. And so he had younger siblings still to help raise. Um, So When the work didn't really pan out in California, we moved back to Colorado. Um, And it was just a given that we would attend the local church there um, where Danny grew up. And so we were attending. We didn't have kids at the time, so we were really involved in young group things. Um, We started a couples group and um, we made friends. We we really kind of dove right in, not knowing what to expect. Um, And I just kind of went along with how I always was. I I felt like um, growing up, we were very middle of the road and I never wanted to offend anyone um, purposely. And I, I was just very, as a, as kind of a young, young person, just confident in being myself. Um, And so we had attended for a short time and a sister called me and said she wanted to have a meeting with me and two other sisters from the church to discuss um, my appearance and that I didn't fall in line with how things were done there at the local church. Um, and this is where Danny steps in, who, if any of you have met Danny, he's, he's, um, he's confident and he'll, he'll stand his ground. And so he said, you know, this, this isn't Matthew 18. If you have a problem, it needs to be one-on-one. And um, she decided to talk to him. She shared just her concerns about things that um, were an issue at the time for her. 
and they were specific aspects of my physical appearance and that she would be um, contacting the ministers because of our seeming, um, I guess, not backing down to that stance. Um, so there was a lot of follow-up calls. There was a lot of chats. And it further showed that her issues weren't over doctrine or even church order, but her own preference as what she really felt like Christians should be like. Um, so we met with the ministers. We were not supported by local leadership. There was not a commanding of a situation at all. Um, I think maybe they didn't know exactly how to deal with it, um, but we stood our ground and we were further ostracized. Our couples group fell apart. Um, the couples had all gathered together and said, we're not sure if we can support this anymore because Danny and Carolyn are leading it. Um, and we, they felt that we were rebellious. Um, we were excluded from churchwide events, singings and young couple events. Um, that same sister decided to start a petition that outlined specific women's appearance um, with every woman's name and church next to it that should be signed, um, promising to never or to not never wear certain things. And there were things that were pointed at me directly that were exactly what she had mentioned earlier. Um, the local leadership did step in and said, you know, this is an attack. We should not be, you know, taking a single sister and starting a petition. Um, so that tension just came to a head. Every Sunday was talking about what was going on. Every Sunday with even our friends was dissecting every conversation and every angle and people would bring in their own emotions to it. And it was just a really tumultuous time um, in that church. So one Sunday, you know, we were just going and trying to work through the emotions of just attending church at the time and kind of praying through what we should do. Um, that sister followed me out into the church parking lot and in front of everyone socializing, decided to basically rip me to shreds. She called me names. She told me that she'd approach me every Sunday until I changed and that she would stand in objection to me being in any leadership positions in the church, which would include Sunday school, um, young group organizations. I was asked to um, be involved in the Sunday school picnic and then was called saying that I would no longer be allowed to be doing that. Um, and I just got in the car that day and I cried and I said, I, I cannot do this anymore. I was at such a physical max for just somebody being so targeted. And I had just gotten to a new place. I was newly married. I was living with my in-laws. I was 21 years old. I was I had a new job. I was a newlywed. And um, I really don't look or act any different than I do today in my everyday life. Um, after these things happened, I really started to physically feel unwell. Um, the more that we fought back and defended ourselves, the more ostracized we felt. And I think that um, it just took a physical toll. It was fully encompassing. Really, the only kind of outlet was going to work because people weren't, you know, from church at work. Um, but I just, every hurtful look, the inaction of people around me, I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night just feeling ill. And I, struggled with anxiety a little bit before this, but I just couldn't get out of my head that I'd never been treated this way. And I, I never had lived a life where I felt that I was just so blatantly offending everyone I knew. Um, and I really forgot my identity in Christ and I felt really beaten down. Um, after that Sunday confrontation, we decided that we could not continue to go there one more Sunday. Um, and we moved to Denver church and that was such a haven for us, which I'll, I'll share a little bit more later, but we healed and we grew immensely out of that situation once we had left. Okay, very good. <clears throat> now we're gonna hear from Becca. Okay, so I'm Becca. Um, here's a little background before I start. Is it too loud? No, it's okay. Um, so Nate and I got married in 2014 and we lived in Columbus. Um, it would have been three years later when I got pregnant with Lillian. I was working full time at OSU in nuclear medicine at the time and I started vomiting daily. I was depressed when pregnant with Lillian, hoping every week I would feel better and then disappointed when I wasn't. Um, I was even vomiting when my water broke and continued to push and vomit until she was born. She was worth all the vomiting. A couple of months after she was born, we moved back to Worcester. Um, we, did, we knew we did not want Lillian to be an only child, 
So in the begin beginning of December in 2018, we found out we were expecting again. Uh, this time, I reached out for help. I started seeing a Christian counselor for my depression. And we had our ultrasound at 20 weeks, and we found out we had placenta previa. Um, this, and my doctor just said they'll check again at 28 weeks, um, and typically it can move. Um, so at this point, I was placed on pelvic rest, and I stopped working. Um, but we were just so thrilled for two girls close together in age. Maybe try for one more, hopefully a boy and be done, having kids. Um, <laughs> how we think we're in control of our lives. So at the 28-week ultrasound, it showed vasoprevia. So this means the placenta has moved um, from the cervix opening, but the vessels supplying the baby now were attached over the cervix opening. So I was considered high risk and they were not gonna deliver me at Worcester anymore. Um, and I was transferred care to Akron. So my first appointment there was on Monday, June 17th. And they explained that if I went into labor, it would be a quick loss of the baby's blood supply. Um, and since it was all fetal blood, I was less at risk, although hemorrhaging was a large concern for both of us. Um, at this point, I was scheduled for weekly ultrasounds and stress tests, um, knowing at any point I would be admitted to the hospital for monitoring, and then I would have a C-section between 34 and 37 weeks, if not sooner. So it was about three days after that appointment, and I was 32 weeks pregnant this time. It was June 20th, uh, Thursday morning, just a normal day. Nate was on summer break from um, working at Worcester High School. And um, that morning, Nate had taken Lillian in my car to meet my dad. Um, so I took Nate's car and just headed to Target to get um, all the last baby things. Um, so at the first stoplight by our house, I was turning left. And that's when I make a quick glance to my side, to my left, and I see a silver Jeep smash into me. So at this point, I may have lost consciousness for a quick second. And then that feeling when everything's slow motion and just high pitched. Um, my driver door had been smashed in and my pelvis was crushed between the middle console and the door. At this point, I knew my pelvis was broke. My legs were spasming and I had hit my head really hard in the window. My vision was blurred. I thought my arm was broke. Just everything was kind of blurry. My left eye keeps blacking out and I'm just in a lot of pain. Um, at this point, I just instantly start praying, oh Lord, my baby. So, <laughs> the Jeep is behind me at this point, so I cannot see the other driver or the passenger. And still to this day, I do not know who they are. Um, a man comes running to my passenger window and I'm just saying, call 911, I'm 32 weeks pregnant, I need to get to the hospital. So next I tell him to call my husband and I'm taking deep breaths and just trying to relax. He asked at this point if I can crawl out. I say no, I knew my pelvis was broke and it was crushed between the console and there's no way I was getting out. So at that point, the squad and police show up and one paramedic comes to the passenger door and he gets in the car with me. So at this point, I repeat to him, I need to get out. I'm 32 weeks pregnant and I have to go to Akron. I cannot go to Worcester Hospital. So the jaw, jaws of life comes and they cover me with a blanket and they start cutting off the driver door. The paramedic is in the car with me and he starts to get my information. I can hardly talk as the pain increases because the adrenaline is wearing off. I have very little breath and I choose to ignore him as he's asking me questions and I just pray. I cannot relax my legs and they're spasming, they're locked straight and I'm just breathing and praying and preparing myself for the driver door to come off. At this point, they stop the jaws of life and one of the guys looks in and he says to me, we can't get the door off so we're gonna have to pull you out through the other door of the windshield. I look at him and I have very little breath. I say, I'm 32 weeks pregnant, I'm stuck. You will try again now. So he covers me up and he tries again. They finally get the door off, and at this point, I'm screaming in excruciating pain. They move me onto a backboard and into the ambulance, and at this point, all I'm concerned about is going to Akron. So I tell them I have to go there, I'm high risk, and they cannot deliver me in Worcester. It's less than 10 minutes to Worcester Hospital and about 40 to Akron, so they explain they're not allowed, um, but Lifelight will be waiting for me at Worcester. 
They had called Nate and told him to meet me at, the, at Worcester Hospital at the ER entrance. And so my dad took Lillian and Nate met me there. I'm crying and is trying to breathe through the pain and praying constantly. When we get to Worcester, they open up the ambulance doors and I see Nate standing there. He's waiting for me and I just lose it. I, I do feel a rush of relief just to have him with me. Um, we get into the room and ultrasound is waiting in my ER room for me and they check and the baby girl has a perfect hurry of 160. So Nate and I look at each other, we sigh a breath of relief and we say, thank you, Lord. We're regrouping and uh, doctors and nurses are getting vitals, they're drawing blood, they're cutting off my clothes. And at this point I tell my, I know my pelvis is broke. I, I can't straighten my legs, I can't move. At this point they're like locked up in a bent position. So someone comes in and says, life flight can't come because of weather conditions. So once I'm stable, I'll go by ambulance to Akron for a C-section. They put the baby monitor on and everything looks good. Um, and at this point, my OB doctor from Worcester pops in and I've never been more thankful to see a familiar face. She knows my case, she knows what's going on. She was in the OR with another patient, but she checks me. I have no vaginal bleeding. The ultrasound heart rate is strong. There's no variation. My blood results show that the placenta has not come off the uterine wall, which is very common in traumas. Um, so at this point, we're feeling okay. I'm trying to breathe through the pain and just focus on relaxing for my baby. Um, the ER doctor then at this point offers me some pain medications and I look to my OB doctor. She says Percocet's fine to take and I ask her what it'll do to the baby. She says it may lower the heart rate a little. So I say no, I want nothing. She tells me they need to stabilize me first and then she'll, she'll be back. Medically, it is always check and stabilize the mother first and the baby second. As a mother and in my mind, it's the baby first and me second. So she tells the girls operating the baby monitor if there's any changes to, to the baby to call her in the OR. So at this point, I do remember looking outside my ear room and seeing police standing there. During all of this, they stood outside my room waiting for me and asking for my statement from the accident. Um, at this point, they then take me to x-ray to check my pelvis and my neck. Um, they slide me over from my cart to a metal table and I'm screaming in pain. That's when they take the baby monitors off so they don't show up in the x-ray when they do my pelvis. Um, the tech comes back in and she's like, it's, it's broke. I'm like, yeah, I know, get me off of this table. Um, they move me back over and they leave off the baby monitor at this point till I get back to my ER room. When we get back, um, someone else comes in and says, life flight team is here and ready to take me to Akron. Another team came. So they put the monitor back on my belly and the ER doctor comes in and says, they can take off the neck collar, but they need to stabilize my pelvis. So the x-rays have shown I have an open book fracture. It means the front is split wide open and the back is broke from the top to the bottom. So the baby was in the x-ray covering my pelvis and they can't tell what it all is exactly broke, but they say they need to binder my pelvis, which means pull the front back together so I don't bleed out internally. So they take a sheet and they slide it down behind me. It, they take the two sides and pull them as tight as they can together in the front and tie a knot. At this point, I am screaming bloody murder. I'm just in so much pain, it's chaos. And I don't remember at what point the nurses are now working on the baby monitor and they start seeing the baby's heart rate drop. They, at this point, start asking me if I feel any contractions. So contractions are showing up and I'm going into labor, but I was already in so much pain, I couldn't feel any contractions. So at this point, I start to just think things like, how can I possibly take care of a newborn baby with my pelvis being broken? Am I gonna be able to breastfeed? She's gonna be in the NICU, are her lungs ready? How will she get to Akron and then will I even be able to hold her? Now, every day since, I've wished that these were my biggest worries. The nurses call my OB doctor. She's in the OR and she tells them to bring me straight to the OR for emergency C-section. Once I get into the OR, the nurses couldn't find any heartbeat. At this point, I go full hysterical mode and just start screaming, just please get her out. She needs to come out. Someone needs to get her out. 
I knew if we got her out, it would be fine, that she'd be fine. Nate is by my side. When my doctor comes running in, she runs to my right side. She takes a probe and she looks. She says, there's no heartbeat. She starts yelling commands and taking charge, but I hear nothing. I look down. I see her grab a bottle of betadine and she squirts the red liquid all over my stomach. And I watch her grab a scalpel. I see a nurse and she's about to cath me. I'm preparing my body for more pain and I didn't even know that was possible. They then put the mask on me. And as I look down, I watch her start cutting me open. I'm preparing myself to die as I went under not knowing what was going to happen. So that's the last thing that I remember until I wake up in Akron. But at this point, Nate is now watching from a window into my OR room. They had her baby girl out in a couple less in less than a couple minutes, but she was already very discolored and never took a breath. They immediately started CPR on her while continuing to work on me. Nate looked in. As he saw and knew his daughter was already dead, he watched them work on me as I was cut wide open, not knowing if I was gonna die as well. They had explained how if we both hemorrhaged at Worcester that neither of us would make it. My OB at one point looks up at Nate and gives him a thumbs up as she was pointing to me. Relief swept over him as he knew I was alive. After continued CPR, Nate told them they could stop working on her baby, that she was already dead. The nurses asked Nate what her name is, and the night before, I had read Nate a list of baby names, and Eloise was both of our favorite. I loved Opal as her middle name, but Nate did not. He named her Eloise Opal Steiner. <laughs> so at this point, Eloise was lifelighted to Akron with me, which I'm so thankful. That's an answered prayer. Anyone that wanted to go got to hold Eloise at Akron before I woke up. Um, when I got there, they were running tests. They did whole body CT. They saw a large hematoma on my left skull and my pelvis was broke in four places, including my lower back two vertebrae. My accident had happened around 9 a.m. My C-section was around 11 and I didn't wake up in Akron until five. The first thing I remember from waking up is seeing all white and feeling no pain. I felt an overwhelming peace a feeling of complete contentment. It was one of the best feelings in my life, as if I was in heaven. I have no idea how long this lasted until I started hearing the nurses talking. And at one point, I remember thinking, I'm not in heaven, but maybe I'm just paralyzed because I can't feel any pain. After this, I started to get feeling back into my chest area. And then came a terrible feeling. It felt like I needed to take a breath, but I could not because I was the ventilation was ventilator was breathing for me. I couldn't talk or move or anything in order to tell someone I couldn't breathe. It felt like I was suffocating every time I needed to take a breath and I couldn't. Every time this happened, I prepared myself to die over and over. I have no idea how long this went on either. Then I was hearing my parents and Nate talking in the background, but I couldn't open my eyes or move my hands or talk. Finally, they took me off the vent and then I could get my eyes open. I was still intubated and restrained, so I couldn't talk or move as I watched them bring a stuffed animal in with a balloon. They quickly rushed them out, but that, at that moment, before I was told, I, I knew my baby was dead. This meant that people were sending gifts before I even knew that Eloise had died. I was gagging and choking and coughing because I was awake but still intubated. I kept motioning to my belly and making, trying to make eye contact with Nate. He would quickly turn away from me, but I could tell just from looking at his eyes that she was gone. But I guess you just have hope until the very last second. I continued to gag and choke, and they finally extubated me. And then that's when I could finally talk in a raspy voice and beg Nate to tell me what happened. My Worcester OB doctor had driven from Akron with her husband and waited in the waiting room for me to wake up so she could tell me what, what happened. Nate sat on my left side and my OB doctor on my right. They each held one hand and she told me what happened. When I was going into labor, the baby dropped down and put pressure on her blood supply. The vessels supplying Elise had ruptured, cutting off her blood instantly. 
Thankfully, I only had small, a, a few small hemorrhages and that everything was repaired and my reproductive organs were saved. Next, they wanted to bring Eloise in. I didn't know if I wanted to see her. I know that sounds terrible, but I didn't think I could. The pain was too deep, it would hurt too badly. It was more than I could handle. This was by far the worst and hardest moment of my life to hold my dead baby. At this point, I was beyond hysterical. I was pleading and begging with God, shaking my head, saying it couldn't be true. At this point, they told me, Becca, I know, I didn't know if I wanted to hold her either if I could, but I did and I'm so glad. I know you feel the same way. So they brought her in and I was inconsolable. I was wailing so loud, they even shut my doors. It hurt so deep. I stopped breathing. It felt like my heart was being ripped out. This pain was beyond anything I ever imagined. She was absolutely perfect. She was healthy. She was beautiful. She had long fingers and toes. She had a dark, full head of hair. And her mouth looked like Lillian. Every organ was formed. Every limb was complete. Every, every finger and toe down to the nail was perfect. She was perfect. Her lungs were developed. Her eyelashes fulfilled. I needed to take her home. I could lay her in her crib. She was ready. She should have lived. Our eyes filled with tears, unstoppable with tears. Nate and I held Eloise and we wept. Jesus wept right beside us. At this point, I have never longed to be taken from this earth into heaven so deeply. I laid in bed with a crushed pelvis. I don't remember having any physical pain. It was nothing compared to this. This emotional pain was more than I could bear. God had given me more than I could bear alone. From that moment, I was crushed in the car. God has carried me. The prayers from all of you have carried me. Prayers for the one, from the ones I love the most to people I have never met came pouring in. I have no idea how we made it through that or even until now. And I know I will always wish for one more moment with her. But no matter how long we get with our children, we will always want one more minute. At this point, we never wanted to let go of her. Our hearts were just shattered. And I didn't even have one picture holding her. It had been around six hours after she had died until when I got to see and hold her for the first and only time. There was very little life left in her and it breaks my heart that Lillian never got to meet her little sister. After they took Eloise, I don't remember much. I do remember I wanted to see Lillian and just hug her and kiss her in case it was the last time because life felt so fragile. My family agreed that it was too late and I wasn't stable enough to see her, but they promised to bring her the next morning and they did. So on top of everything, since this was a car accident, the police wanted to charge the 17 year old with vehicular manslaughter because Eloise had died. So they wanted to autopsy her. And at this point, I have never felt so overwhelmed in my life. I was so consumed just trying to process everything that I honestly could not make a decision. So Nate chose no autopsy and I supported him. Nate and I talked and we both knew, without a doubt, we did not want to ruin the, those other kids' future. We knew and we know that this was God's plan for Eloise. Nate and I didn't want to go to sleep. I knew when we would sleep, we would have to wake up. And when we wake up, we would have to remember all over again that Eloise was dead and I was unable to move and that this wasn't just a terrible nightmare, it was real. When they finally gave me enough medications, pillows, blankets to get my physical pain under control, then I would emotionally be unstable and cry hysterically. By the time they got my, I got my emotions back under control, I would be back in physical pain. It was a very vicious cycle. When I would sleep, I would have night terrors, like full PTSD night terrors. I would wake up with my gown completely soaking wet. They would wring it up. They could have wrung it out. That's how much sweat. The nurses would come in and they'd change my gown until I fell asleep and it would just happen again. 
there were a couple of times where I was so overwhelmed, I would just stop breathing. All of my machines would just start, start beeping. The first couple of times the nurses would come in and then eventually my family would just tell me to breathe. And honestly, I didn't want to. I just wanted my baby. So my accident was on a Thursday morning and I wasn't stable enough to do my next surgery for my pelvis until Monday. So that meant I laid in my hospital bed in the ICU for four days and nights with a crushed pelvis, not able to move or adjust even ever so slightly. And I never will forget the feeling of broken raw bones scraping each other in my back. My sister at this point had a two month old baby who started to cry in my hospital room. And that's when I felt my milk let down and I lost it again. I had to deal with all of the postpartum things, even with no baby. It felt so cruel. At this point, they tried everything to stop the milk, even cabbage. And during the night, I would have night tears and it would turn into sauerkraut. <laughs> and I couldn't handle the smell. Not being able to shower was hard enough. Being bedridden after having a baby is miserable. And then add on the trauma of a crushed pelvis. The bleeding and swelling was humiliating. One of my biggest fears was pooping. <laughs> That's I mean, think about it. What was I going to do? I couldn't roll, move, stand. I, I was just very nervous about that. <laughs> and going septic and having infections. So my dear sister would come to my room after she worked and clean my fully. Not something I ever thought I'd ask at 27. She'd sponge bathe me, paint my nails, brush my teeth, change my gown. Heard my mom and my sisters, they would wash my hair. That was turning into rat's nest in a, a wash basin. And I can't tell you how good that felt. So I had x-rays again before my surgery and they confirmed that my fractures were not stable. Meaning not only did my pelvis split farther apart in the front, but also half of it started rotating forward and the other half back. So at this, this was Monday and they put a long screw through my back of my pelvis from side to side. And then they put a plate with a bunch of screws across the front and this locked my pelvis in place. And although I was very anxious to go back under, um, anesthesia for my pelvis surgery, everything went well. I was even able to stand a few days later. And then five days later, I actually sat in a chair. So I was then sent to Worcester um, to an inpatient rehab facility until I was more stable and to learn the essentials of daily living before I could go home. Although I still was not able to bear any weight on my left leg for months. At rehab at Worcester, I finally got my first real shower and of course, it was sitting in a shower chair in pain, but Nate helped me. And so at this point, I asked if he could shave my legs for me. Um, not something I ever thought I would ask my husband to do for me at 27. So of course, he agreed. And he got a razor and he started shaving my legs in a downward motion. <laughs> I, was, I was dying laughing. What on earth? Did he think our leg hair grew up? I don't know. Anyway, laughter can really help the soul. So... Um, a couple of weeks at, in rehab, they then sent me home with every type of doctor and supplies and medication. And then we had a funeral for Eloise that weekend. We had a small service with only our family, but I was able to go in a wheelchair. They asked us to pick a song and Jesus Loves Me is all that felt right to us. It was the littlest casket I've ever seen. It was silver and it had the most gorgeous purple and pink flowers, but it all felt surreal. It couldn't be happening. The pain was too heavy for words. After the service ended, I never wanted to leave because leaving would make it so final. Well, that's the hard, the ugly, and the tough part of life and their experience. But aren't we glad that with God, there is hope. <laughs> okay, so what were your methods to heal from your experience? Becca's going to go first. Okay, so... Well, I would say I'm still healing. I'm still in it. And I think we're all a work in progress. And I'm not sharing all of this because I have it figured out. I'm sharing ultimately to glorify God, but also to help others. 
and to share the hope we have as Christians in the midst of these trials. I do want to share the ugly. I do think we need to be vulnerable and honest in order to help others. So I do believe there are different types of grief and many stages of grieving. Um, I say this from experience and also from learning from others. Um, the type of grief and what I went through was debilitating. It was traumatic. It was unexpected. And as well as emotional, I also have physical pain. So I have found that there's two types of healing. There's temporary healing and there's eternal healing. healing. You may be running all over to fill a void from earthy things, but you need to search God, dig in. We did not choose suffering, but we can and need to choose obedience. So temporary healing are the things I felt deal with self-care. So this was particularly in this first six months after my accident. When the grief is debilitating, you need anything that will get you out of bed and through the day. Um, Nate and I referred to this many times as the fake it till you make it season. Although you may not feel like it, you just go through the motions that you know to be true. So a couple of things um, that helped me get through this time. Um, I look forward to a latte every day that my sisters brought to the hospital. And then when I got to rehab, my dad brought one to um, my room every morning at 5.30 and we drank it together. Um, I did some yoga, some silver sneakers yoga. Yeah. <laughs> um, I found a song that I really felt was everything I was feeling. Um, Die Will by Hilary Scott. Um, come to find out she actually wrote the lyrics from her prayers after experiencing her own miscarriage. Um, I did a vacation with my parents and Lillian and a sister trip to Florida. That was really good. Um, I also did a lot of retail therapy. <laughs> Nate did not recommend that. <laughs> but I guess when you think you almost die, you can't take anything. Anything with you, money doesn't matter, life's short. Yeah, it's not always great, but um, for a season. Also purple, anything and everything purple reminds me of Eloise. Um, something practical I did, I wore a blindfold in the car um, to a lot of my doctor's appointments to help with my anxiety. It was about four months until I even drove again, and that was really hard to do. Um, I think the hardest part is that I can drive safe, but you cannot control everybody else driving. And that takes a lot of, yeah, have a lot of anxiety driving. Um, also, so the morning after my accident, when I was in Akron, a woman from Forget Me Not drove down and she gave me a basket for Eloise. She went over all the items in the basket um, and they have been so comforting. Um, the organization is amazing and I've held these items close to my heart. Um, and since you don't have anything physical to take home from the hospital, it's, it's really nice to have something to, to have in her remembrance. Um, another thing was a metal bracelet that the OB nurses put on me in Akron. Um, they explained that Eloise had a matching one and they took pictures of her holding it. Um, since I was in the hospital, it was basically the only thing I could wear other than a hospital gown. And Eloise is now buried with it and her matching one. Um, it was something physical I had to remember her. Um, the first morning in rehab, when I got to Worcester, they got me ready, they wheeled me down to my therapy room and I just started crying. I didn't, I didn't know how I was gonna sit in the room and lift weights with Henry who was 100 when I just lost my baby and I can't walk and he can walk and I'm fine, I'm just like not. So I was like, take me back to my room. So they wheeled me back there and then that is when a doctor came in and she had told me, we're gonna start you on medication for depression and anxiety. Um, at this point I agreed, I said, I needed it in my situation. I had to get physically better so I could get home to be with Lillian and Nate and to take care of myself. Um, and then I could heal more emotionally. So these medications have been something that really helped me survive. So for temporary healing for me, um, I needed physical space um, from the church. We really felt like um, growth was not gonna happen there with us being there at the time. Um, and it really proved right because we didn't receive one phone call asking where we were, why we had left, or where we were going. Um, we, as a last kind of ditch effort, instead of moving out of state, we tried to go to Denver. We didn't know anyone there, and um, it, it was just truly sent from God for us to go there. Um, it's a small little church with a lot of people who don't have local family, so it was, it's a very... Zoom complication. <laughs> um, no, okay. So there was a lot of people rallying around us and really like 
um, supporting us and wanting us to um, just be a part of it. And that really was, was healing because we had felt so outside of the church family for so long. And there was a very come as you are attitude there, which we really appreciated. Um, there were many spiritual women in my life that spoke at that time. Um, first and foremost would have been my mom. Um, she was really hurt as most moms would be if their daughter was treated this way. And she just walked me through my anxious thoughts and my reactions and how I could respond in a godly way. Um, I spoke with a lot of other women who are in this situation. I, I felt so alone at the time, but I'm sure there's some of you today that maybe have shared in some of this in some way. And I think that, um, it's so important, like Becca said, to share, um, our vulnerabilities, and we just thrived in a loving church environment. We kind of waited for the ball to drop. There was always sort of a, okay, when's this going to turn sour after you've been through that coming from our past? But our new church family truly listened and affirmed us. Um, we recognized godly leadership in our elder there, Mike Lehman. He really just walked alongside us and counseled us through a lot of those things. Um, and I can't leave this part without saying Danny. He had so many conversations in my defense. Um, it brought us closer together. He really went to bat for me and he was ready to defend me as a godly man. I think that he was really worried about how I was physically doing and he got to the point where like, you know what, you need to come through me first. He was kind of my security there. But you know, I would second guess everything I put on before I left the house and was terrified of, you know, just my physical appearance. And he would just constantly remind me to be respectful myself okay so now eternal healing um these are things that deal with soul care so things for me included prayer my husband um lillian family church and friends um we are doing a bible study with other couples who have lost a child um i listen to and read a lot of books about suffering grief and child loss I did morning devotions with quotes for anxiety and depression to start the day. Um, I prayed for all the babies born June 20th to August 17th, which was Eloise's due date. Um, also praying for other moms who miscarry or have infertility. Um, one of the best things has been my counselor, or as Nate and I call her, my life coach. Um, I mentioned her before, but I started seeing her while I was pregnant with Eloise. Um, to help with my depression. So after my accident, she agreed to see Nate and I both for PTSD and grief. Um, the crazy thing is she actually had a stillborn baby herself. I mean, there's no denying that that's God. Um, little did I know I was seeing her way back then so she could help me through all of this. Um, and although Nate jokes that he actually says everything she does, I just listen to it better. Um, and I would even consider her a friend, but it says you don't pay friends. But, um, and one of our very first sessions with her, she, um, she said research shows two of the most important things people need to get through tragedies like this are God and support. And we have both. Um, I could have spent the whole day talking about my amazing sisters and my family and my parents. Um, and a special place in my heart breaks because Lillian lost her sister, which is a relationship I cherish so much. Um, back to my counselor though. I have literally cried in her office so much. I've used the last Kleenex out of her box, not once, but two times. <laughs> That's how often I cry and how often I see her. But. Um, not only has she given me practical things to do, but she takes all of my random thoughts and feelings um, and puts them into words and she organizes them for me. Um, journaling has been one thing she has really encouraged us to do. Um, so she had Nate and I write out everything that happened on that day, kind of what I read, and we wrote, um, we read it aloud to each other and to her. Um, this is something that we both feel helped us a lot and it's something we would have probably never done if she hadn't um, made us do it. And yeah, she actually had to give me a deadline because he was not doing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she recommended a lot of books for me, um, encouraged daily routines and habits. She prays with us and for us. And most importantly, she tells me I'm normal every 
Um, I still see her and I'm very thankful God has placed her in my life. I had an emergency session with her. I have a whole page on how awesome she is and nothing about me. <laughs> so I just want to take a minute to say how absolutely amazing my husband is. Anyway, moving on. No, I'm kidding. No, he's really is good. He's carried me both emotionally and physically. Um, he provides and protects and most importantly, he keeps me laughing. Um, okay, so I feel time passes and healing comes, but the two are not connected. You cannot rush healing or grief, and healing looks different for everyone. There's no normal, there's just the loss, and there's the Lord. There's no boxes to check and no timelines to overcome. And my life co coach also explained that just because Nate won't cry every time I do or every 10 to 100,000 times I do does not mean he isn't grieving and feeling his pain in his own way. Um, this stopped me from asking him every 20 minutes how he's feeling and what he's thinking. So that was very helpful. Um, I think suffering also helps us reach out to others and to soften our hearts. Um, now, since I've felt pain so deep, I feel joy so much greater. I feel I'm more capable of such an emotional range. Um, there are definitely days I get up and I feel I'm conquering the world. And there's days I just lay on the bathroom floor and cry. So I've had a lot of pity parties for myself. Um, most of the time I've asked why God gave me so much at once. Um, and then I think of Job. And it's okay to ask why. Job asked why 16 times. He still got no answer. And in scripture, in scripture says in Job 122, in all of this, Job sinned not. So I think eventually we need to change why this happened to what can I learn and how can God be glorified? Um, as Christians, we have the resources for a bigger worldview and we can handle a lot of suffering. We know we have a day with no more tears. We have that promise to hold on to. So for my eternal healing, um, because this was such a spiritual issue, um, I really spent a lot of time researching and praying about what I really believed to be true, what I believed about God, what I believed about the church and about modesty. Like, was I actually wrong? You know, should I not have stood up so firmly? Does God put an emphasis on these things? And like, how do you live with somebody who just completely disagrees with you? Um, and I prayed a lot to overcome the anxiety. I would go back to visit and I would sweat. I would breathe fast. I would get so upset by the littlest things that would just set me off. That would just give me permission to be in a bad mood. Um, and I would talk bad about that church whenever I could. And that's really the truth because I still really felt it. And I learned to take control of those resentful thoughts to stop them when they first entered my head. And, um, though not always successfully, trying to remember that God is the only one that changes a heart. Um, she would constantly challenge me if I'd really forgiven her. I would run into her and she would act as though nothing happened. She'd be very kind to me. She would even comment on the modesty of my clothes. Um, but I just think that I waited too long for an apology because I thought that if I really got a true apology from her, that I would be able to move past it. And I never did. Um, but that wasn't an excuse to to carry unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart. Um, I really realized that when, when Jesus is asked how many times you need to forgive, he uses the number 70 times 7. And it's not because somebody will necessarily transgress against you 490 times, but that can be as often as you think about it. And as often as you need to remind yourself um, that you need to forgive. And I, I had recently gone gone back through that chapter, and I thought, what was the context? And it's really actually Matthew 18. It's written after um, there's instruction on how to deal with conflict within the church. And right after is the, the example of the servant who wasn't thankful for being forgiven. And so he turned around and forgave way less than what he was forgiven. And I realized that that is why it's so important to remember where our salvation comes from and that we are saved by grace and not by works because no one can brag about their faithfulness. Um, I can't brag about my faithfulness when I know that I'm only helped by his grace. And if I did everything she wanted me to, it wouldn't put me any in any better standing than where I stood with Christ. Um, it wouldn't make me more Christ child to please everyone or to never offend someone again. Um, and 
I shared my experience like, like this now with other women who've experienced this in our churches. She tried to bully me and most would have backed out in the name of peace. And I'm glad that I did. Um, that may be, that may sound, you know, controversial in itself, but I learned so much more than I would have by just conceding and harboring quiet resentment for many years to come. I learned a lot about where my strength was from, where my worth was from, and that the only good standing I can have is because of Christ's sacrifice. Yes, and when we hold a grudge, we're only hurting ourselves because most of the time the person doesn't even know you're holding that grudge against them. So right. it's something that's right. good to remember. <clears throat> So, what have you learned from your experience, Becca? Okay, well, um, that I'm normal, and it's okay to not be okay. Um, I struggled with feeling anxiety, being angry or mad, or sudden weeping, and I wouldn't know why. Um, so, I would get upset about having those negative feelings and say to myself, I shouldn't be feeling this way, or I have to hold it together. Um, but I think it's important just to feel those feelings and be okay with it and give yourself the grace. Um, what helped me was expressing them to God in prayer or writing them in a journal. Um, go through the feeling and feel it, but don't become the emotion. Um, that our feelings don't always dictate God's truth, and they don't change the fact that God is worthy of being worshipped. Um, I've also learned that there really aren't any words that can help or fix what you're going through. Um, I've noticed that there's this pressure to like get it right or say the perfect thing um, to people. So people avoided me or they would actually just say some things that would make it worse. Um, I guess if I was in the other situation, I would recommend like making a statement to someone who's experienced loss or going through a hard time by just saying, I know you've been through a lot and this road is long and I'm sorry, but I'm here for you if or whenever you want to talk about it. Um, for me personally, I was very miserable and crying so much that when I was with my friends, I just wanted to feel some sense of normal again. Um, so I think just being there for the person and offering a listening ear is huge. And if they want to share more at that time, they will dictate the conversation. Um, I've learned that even in the worst of times that there's many things to be thankful for. So um, choosing to have hope and to live in the spirit. Um, if we do this, we'll see the blessings that God sends. I wanna share just a couple like God moments during my super dark time. So back to when I was still pregnant um, with Elise at my high risk appointment would have been the Monday of my accident. And that night I was vomiting and praying like I did every night and I prayed that I would um, not get to hold Eloise on my chest and then she would die. Um, holding Lillian on my chest after birth was the best moment of my life. And I, I didn't think I could handle having the best moment and then the worst moment. Um, and God did answer that prayer as dark as that is. But, um, another time was when they strapped me to a stretcher and they transported me from Worcester to Akron in an ambulance. Um, a young guy rode in the back with me and uh, we were talking and I asked him if he liked what he did um, and if it was the career he planned on doing. And he said, yes, he does because he's a Christian and he gets to witness to people at their most vulnerable times. Um, I was so impressed with this and I just really appreciated his prayers in that time. Um, another time was my first night I stayed alone in rehab. So Nate has stayed the night with me up in Akron and my family was with me all day long. I hadn't really been like alone. And um, when I got to Worcester, Nate wasn't allowed to stay the night anymore. So um, I had my first night alone and I was in so much pain. I had a fever and chills and body ache and my, my nurse was giving me everything she could and nothing helped. Um, and I knew something was wrong. It wasn't my usual pain. And I cried in misery the entire night and I knew something was infected. So my first thought was that my hardware was and that I was gonna have to go back to Akron and I was like, that's not happening. So um, then my nurse that night took a sample of my urine and I've never been so thankful for UTI, <laughs> praise <laughs> the Lord. Um, so anyway, my nurse then she came back after being off for her day, her shifts um, and she came back and she told me, that night that I spent crying and there was nothing that she could do. She stood outside the door and prayed for me. 
So, um, and then on her days off, she went for a run and she prayed for me then. Um, so another person was my OB doctor from Worcester. Um, so when I got to rehab at Worcester, she would come and visit. She brought me cookies. Um, she gave me one of my favorite devotionals. Um, she would come and just hold my hand and pray, pray with me. Um, couple more. So, um, when I was, after I was discharged then, and I was home, I had one of my first doctor's appointments and I showed up and the receptionist said she knew my name because she had been praying for me, but she has never met me. Um, someone had put my name on their prayer list at church, even though I've never been to that church, they were all praying for me. Um, so, um, sometimes you may not be able to see or know the impact that you're making in others. Um, and a couple of my girlfriends shared with me, this was around, um, Eloise's one year mark back in June, but they shared that, um, Nate and I choosing not to blame the other driver was really huge to a world with no Jesus. So what seemed like an easy decision for us was very difficult for them to understand. Um, they see a need for justice and revenge, and they want to blame people when something bad happens. Um, Nate and I gave grace to the other drivers, and we pray someday they can do the same for someone else. So I've learned from my experience that um, if you're not wrong after evaluation, you can really be used. Um, our tough stuff can be used to shoulder the burden of others, and I think Becca and I can both say that. We've, we've been there to help those around us that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, if we're never exposed to ideas and people who do things differently than us, we don't see positive change. Um, just because I look differently than you doesn't mean that we don't share the same faith. When we focus on Jesus and his sacrifice uniting us, we can be united despite taking different liberties. And just to remember that it's about him and not about us. Um, just to recognize that everybody is going through something. Um, she had her own personal conflict that was taken out on me. And inversely, I was going through a lot of change at the time. And it was not the time to bring up something like that to me, especially a non-salvation issue. Um, I think that a lot of evaluation needs to go on in your heart and mind before you approach someone about something. You know, consider, is this my preference I'm trying to impose or is it just the way I like things to be? Um, am I actually worried that this is gonna go down the wrong path? Um, do I have a personal relationship with this person? Maybe you're not the right person to talk to them, but God can provide it if it's his leading. And most of all, how much has the spirit been involved in me contemplating this confrontation? Is this just an idea I had? Is it something that upsets me? And is it not grounded in the Holy Spirit's leading? And if not, only God can change our hearts. And maybe it's yours that will change. Okay. What would you say to someone to give them hope in a similar hurt? Okay, so um, I've learned you can't compare pain. So my pain is not worse than yours. I think it's all in perspective. We've all been given a different lot in life, but just to know you're not alone. I reached out to other women who have, um, other Christian women who have lost a child, and that was really helpful for me. Um, I just want to be a church where I feel we can be open and we can share pain just like we share joy. Um, I also never knew how common miscarriage was until I had a stillbirth. Um, also, how little it's talked about. Um, it breaks my heart, all of the cards and notes I received with stories of women losing their babies, and maybe this was quite possibly the only time they ever acknowledged them. Um, I just want to bring glory to God through the loss of Eloise and be her voice in this earth that we'll never get to hear. Um, also, I would just want to encourage journaling. Um, I didn't do much journaling before my accident, but it has helped me so much. Um, not only are you able to have an outlet for your thoughts and emotions, but you can also look back and reflect on God's graces and how far you've come. Um, I think our biggest testimony can be how we're responding to a hardship during the hardship. Um, so anniversaries are hard. I didn't really have this part before because it would have been before Eloise's one year. Um, but I think you just need to be active and intentional. Um, on the one year anniversary, um, I had asked my sisters and my parents to come, um, come over via phone. And I just wanted to share my story of what I went through that day that Eloise had died. Um, this was he so healing for me. And after I finished, I just felt this weight lifted off. 
Um, also, all my sisters were in town the weekend before, so they had purple balloons and we released them and we had a birthday cake for Louise. Um, and Nate's family got us a lilac tree that we planted in her remembrance. Um, I think anniversaries are just so hard because part of you doesn't want it to be a year and you don't want to move on. You don't want to feel like you're getting further away from her. But one of my girlfriends reminded me that it's good because we are actually one year closer to seeing her in heaven. So, um, also, I would say at the one year mark, I, I never felt so thankful for Jesus. The fact that he knew he was going to suffer the way he did, and he willingly did that for me and for everyone here. I just know that I would have done everything in my power not to get in the car that morning. So Jesus is something I can hold on to. And I think it's important to let joy back in after mourning and to not feel guilty about it, just to be able to enjoy life after suffering. Um, people need to see you clinging to his promises and treasuring his friendship, praising his name, even when life's falling in on you. Caroline. Um, I think I would say to someone to give them hope is um, to take the time to examine your heart. I had so much more peace when I realized that this behavior had so much more to do with her than it did me. Um, also to know what you believe. Um, I think that we can all say we know that, you know, that we're saved, that we're children of God. It's really easy to grow up and realize that, um, that we're placed there. And it's so important to know in case you're personally um, in a situation like this, that you can say what you're convicted of as, when it comes to liberties. You may have to defend yourself one day and I felt really unprepared. And I think if I had the same experience today, I'd have a lot more confidence to defend myself. Um, a big part too is repent if you're wrong. Not every person who confronts you is trying to bully you. Um, if you're in a loving church environment and the person who's approaching you has prayed about it and has real genuine concern for you, then take it to God in prayer. See if the Lord changes your thinking or actions. Repent where you've made the wrong choice. You could miss something like I did, which showed me that at the very least of my flaws was that I had the wrong attitude. I've held on to unforgiveness for far too long. And she still gets under my skin sometimes, but it's because I have a scar there where I was hurt. And under... and. I remember the incident, but it just doesn't hurt me nearly like it used to. And lastly, I learned conviction over preference. We all have our ideas of how church should be like. I like cafeteria style lunch, <laughs> but, but you know how we see that difference really matters and how we go about it really, I think says a lot about our faith and who we are as Christians. Okay, what hope can you give to others? Okay, so I feel Satan wants to steal our innocence. He wants to kill our hope and destroy our dedication to God, as well as our relationship with him. Um, I think we need to focus on being grateful for what we've been given and not resentful for what's been taken. When we endure this life and all it has to throw at us, we display our faith that Christ has indeed conquered this world. So much of our mental energy is spent staying stuck in shame and regret of the past um, or fearing what might happen in our future. I could have easily slipped into a life of resentment after losing Elise and all of my physical pain. Um, even now, I have to consciously fight that tendency. It's a daily decision I have to make to live my life gratefully. I used to tell myself almost daily that undeserved suffering is not a consequence of sin. So life without God still has suffering. There's just no will or purpose in it. I think... If we let our wounds become calloused, our compassion for others will too. And that would be the greatest tragedy of all. Okay, Carolyn. Choosing to forgive is never easy, but I've heard it said that in forgiveness, we're the most Christ-like. It was in his absolute nature to forgive and he forgave us so much. And we have to see that even those that hurt us as God's children are worthy of forgiveness. And once I let it go, I was so free. I realized that um, if I waited around for that apology, I would just be the one carrying that heavy load. And I didn't want to be bogged down by that bitterness. Um, God can bring about change without you. We left and felt God's leading too. And the church has experienced a lot of growth since then. We recently attended a family member's baptism and we were never more warmly received. 
There have been people who've come after us that didn't fit the mold either, and it seems that many have learned from the past. We've had people apologize to us at the time that repented and said that they should have stood up and um, that it wasn't right what had happened and that God will bring about what change he sees fit. And lastly, I would say to share the heart that Satan wants you to feel judged, isolated, and discarded. God wants us to feel loved, accepted, and a part of his kingdom. Everything I've been through has been hard at the time, but I know that now it's ultimately used for my good. Okay. Anything else you want to say? Any last thoughts, Becca? Okay. So after enduring suffering, I've learned that God is still good. He is good even when life is not. Um, I think we need to evaluate why we serve God. Do we serve him for the good he gives us? That would be a selfish motive, a vending machine approach. Um, can God give us what we want and what we pray for and provide miracles? I do believe he can, but if he always did this, then we wouldn't need faith. Um, and we would not have a servant attitude that God wants us to have. We need to serve him because he's sovereign. And no matter what we get in this life, we need to choose to praise his name. Okay, Carolyn. As I said in the beginning, I was really struggling with sharing and just worrying about, you know, being perceived and if this is an important issue to bring up. And this past Thursday, I've just had so many friends praying for me and I was alone and I, my music app popped up a song I hadn't heard and it was called Scars and I just wanted to read it. It says, waking up to a new sunrise, looking back from the other side, I can see now with open eyes, darkest water and deepest pain, I wouldn't trade for anything because my brokenness brought me to you. And these wounds are a story you'll use. And I, I really felt like it just really spoke to me that you just, there's so many things that happen to us in life that we maybe feel like are insignificant or maybe won't impact. Um, but the rest says, so I'm thankful for the scars because without them, I wouldn't know your heart. And I know that I'll, they'll always tell of who you are. And so forever, I'm thankful for these scars. Um, Okay, so Carolyn, you got a verse or a quote that you want to give as a closing? So it's in your book. It's what I submitted, Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these... Put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Okay, now Becca. Um, so I'm just going to read a quote that is also printed in your packet um, by Morgan Harper Nicole. One day you will look back and see all along you were blooming. All along you were being prepared for something that was far greater than you. And even though it was hard to see in the moment, it made all the difference that you chose to believe. Even here, even now your story was far from over because the truth is you wouldn't still be here. If there wasn't more to your story, you wouldn't still be here. If there wasn't more for you to see, you wouldn't still be here. If you were not bloom still blooming into the person you were meant to be. Amen. Thank you. <laughs>